The future may not be clear, but our commitment is. So when you sit with an advisor at Merrill Lynch, we'll put your interests first. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have Ken Fisher. And just a really quick story. The first time I had Ken Fisher as a guest, uh, we had a conversation that was quite fascinating. I'm intrigued by the business he's built and how successful he's been uh, operating in a way that the rest of the world of finance just hasn't. And he really has created... Uh, what is a unique path to build a very successful firm. After we finished the interview, we walked over and we, I think we were in the green room um, of of the television area. He had a, a somewhere else he was heading to or appearing. And we started talking after we talked for 90 minutes last time. And that 10 minute or so conversation made it clear to me, gee, there's a ton of stuff I didn't get to. I want to talk to you about his business, how he grew it, the things he did. And so when I saw he was coming back into town, I think it's about uh, two years since our last interview, um, I jumped at the opportunity to interview him again. This is a very much a business-focused conversation. We talk about markets and stocks and everything else and, and his love of annuities. But we also talked about how he built his business. Uh, and I found that absolutely fascinating. And I think you will also. So with no further ado, my conversation with Ken Fisher. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Ken Fisher. Uh, He is the founder and chief executive of Fisher Investments, which manages just under $80 billion. Uh, Ken has been named one of the 25 most influential figures in the financial industry. He's the author of a dozen or so books, half of which have been New York Times bestsellers. He was named, I think you were number 225 on the Forbes 400 list. Is that a- 184. That's good, because normally under 200. No, it doesn't count because you're not even median. Oh really? You're so you're median, me, medians, you know, two hundred, right? So and, and I, I was always below average. Oh, <laughs> well, Ken Fisher, welcome back to Bloomberg. You know, and, and and it's tough to be above average. It is tough to be above average. Everybody knows that in in, in money management. So let's jump right into the concept of uh, building a business based on the dying art of stock picking. And the first question is: Is it truly a dying art? You, you know, I think. Stock picking was always very tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's any tougher than it ever was. I think there's more light being shown on that now. That's a really interesting... Uh, the fact is that when I was young, uh, a long time ago, there was very little uh, sort of data analytics. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was very... I mean, you just think of computerization and all those features sure. and how primitive that was in that world then. And the uh, I, I was at a, an event yesterday, and John Bogle was speaking, and he was making the point that he'd actually done analytical work in 1961 showing that average, on average active investors lagged uh, the market. And yet while you could do that analytical work in 1961, uh, the public's perception of it really didn't much exist for a very, very long time. And he talked at some length about how agonizingly slow that was for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet often 
things that change in the world change like that, where for a long time they go nowhere fast, and then slowly they start getting traction and continue. Um, I, I don't think, counter to some people's perception, because passive is all the rage right now, I don't think active ever disappears. Um, but stock picking and active management have always been tough to do and succeed at. So couple. Of, I'm hearing a couple of things. First, the analytics are much more readily available to anybody who wants to sit down at a, at Google Finance or a Bloomberg terminal and look at the numbers. But think, you mentioned Jack Bogle in 1961. They didn't launch their index fund till 1974. And, right. and he describes it as a colossal failure at first. That they Five ran, years. Five years of failure. Right. Just did nothing, attracted almost no assets. No, no. I remember that world. I mean, I was, you know, I was in this realm of endeavor in those days. And I remember that world uh, at the time, and uh, of, of course, you know the, the big Kahuna in mutual funds at the time was Dreyfus, mm -hmm. and uh, yet the world was very different. And I also remember that in those days, you know, Forbes' big annual issue was its mutual fund special, mm -hmm. and the mutual fund special had—I'm not talking about a couple of hundred fund families—they had a couple of hundred funds in the mutual fund special because there weren't that many mutual funds in the world the way there are today. Mm -hmm. All of this evolution is a slow evolution, and that's not abnormal. That, that, that's fascinating that 55 years later, you know, the old joke is it only takes, only takes a decade to be an overnight sensation. Um, so you've built a huge RIA based on what I have to think is a somewhat different process than many of the larger uh, asset managers build. What what makes the Ken Fisher approach so unique? Uh, when I was young, I became very enamored uh, early, very early on in 1976 with Nucor Steel. And Nucor Steel? New, Nucor Corporation, the steel mm -hmm. manufacturer, when it was just starting into steel. Uh, Ken Iverson, I came by coincidence to get to know, and I was very impressed by what he was doing. And uh, he taught me that steel production uh, was a function of multiple compound yields. And if you could keep, you didn't have to be the best at any one of them, you had to have the best combination of all of them. Mm -hmm. And then- Sounds like a portfolio. Then when I studied uh, IBM, I saw that they never ever had the best computer. They always had a very good computer, but they never ever had the best one. Mm -hmm. But if you took all of the pieces of what they did, sales, service, all of the pieces together, they compounded to the best totality for the customer. And what, I would like to think is that we, from the beginning, started thinking about all of those pieces. So, you know, people tend to think of us in terms of our advertising because that's what they see. That's a really wrong notion. We do a lot of advertising, that's true, but we're not actually very good at it, as nearly as good as I'd like to be. We, on the other hand, are exceptional at service, and people don't have a most people in the world don't have a clue about our service capabilities. We do all kinds of things in service other people don't do. And uh, then we have a good- G Give me a for instance, or is that like the secret sauce no, that can't no, be revealed? No, not secret. It's, you know, we, <laughs> we have an elaborate array across uh, the English-speaking world of um, a variety of forms of client-only seminars. These are not sales seminars. These are mm -hmm. service seminars uh, for clients and their families that uh, come in different types because different people receive information differently. And they range from very large ones with you know 500 people at a crack run by senior people at the firm uh, providing hours, literally hours of both, a couple hours of presentation of 
detailed information as to how we're seeing things and why we're thinking this and why we're not thinking that, et cetera, et cetera, which include an education component, along with then a, followed by a couple of hours of Q&A. Down, all the way down to tiny little events run by uh, people who are, when I say tiny little, 10, 12 people, mm-hmm. 10, 12 customers, and with technical answers being only answering questions to events that we do, which nobody else in the world would do, where we put you know, 12, 20 clients together for a lunch and there's nobody from Fisher there at all. And we let them talk about whatever they want to talk about so they can talk about us behind their back. Because for a lot of people, actually, that's the proof of the pudding is being able to talk about their advisor behind their back and know that the advisor trusts them enough to do that. Therefore, they have an increased trust level in the advisor. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Ken Fisher of Fisher Investments, a firm that manages just about $80 billion in assets. Let's talk a little bit about where we are today in the world. It's 2017. Wait, it's 2017? 2017, for those of you listening to this far off in the future. Valuations in the U.S. have been called high. Interest rates are low. There's not a whole lot of inflation. And the Fed has said that they're starting uh, a series of rate hikes to normalize interest rates. First question is, how unusual a set of circumstances is the stock market in today? Um, I would say that the stock market is in its... Um, usual unique position. <laughs> the stock market is- I want to, wait, wait, before you go forward, I have to put that in quotes. Usual unique position. Yeah, the stock market is always full of what appears to be morphing into different unique things. People are almost always too myopic about the features that we confront today that always seem to be so different and so unique and so unusual and in retrospect appear not to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I say retrospect, far retrospect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the, all of the things that you said are quite literally correct, uh, but I don't think that has much to do with real fundamentals. So how do the fundamentals look here? What do you see at this point in in the market cycle valuations are high because interest rates are low uh the of course important interest rate that really matters is the long rate not mm-hmm. the short rate so much and uh y- you know people have been forecasting long rates to rise for a long time and they've always been wrong and they'll be wrong again this year and uh i mean you can just kind of count on them being wrong every you know, every once in a while they get to be right for a little while before they end up being wrong but the consensus has to be wrong because that's the market pre-pricing all widely known information that's mm-hmm. what capital markets theory says markets do for a living and they do it pretty well not perfectly but pretty well so valuations in the u.s are stretched what about no i don't think so you don't think so i think valuations are st- if you think of pe for first of all i'm getting ready for this pe's have never been predictive for sure and uh, the, 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 the Schiller uh, Cape PE folk mm-hmm. uh, always talk about that it's really only intended for 10 years down the road, but then they apply it almost always to next month. <laughs> and uh, the fact of the matter is that the Schiller KP has been wrong so long, so many times, that anyone should know not to use it for any kind of even intermediate term timing. And uh, yet people forget that. I, I keep, let's stay with CAPESEC. I totally agree with you. I think going back to 1993, CAPE has been above its long-term average for 90% of the time. However, uh, as Bob Schiller would say, when you buy 
if you take the average CAPE at 15 or 16, if you're buying stocks when you're at above average valuations, your forward expected return should be below average. And when you're buying CAPE at below average PE, your forward expectations should be above average. Is, is that a fair statement the professor makes or do you disregard that? I think it totally ignores behavioral realities of what humans are. Mm -hmm. uh, what the way humans are is that if the next 10 years are gonna be lousy but the next five years are gonna be great, uh, people are gonna lose their mind before the next five years are over and then they'll lose their mind differently five years after that. <laughs> okay, and, that's fair. And the fact of the matter is that uh, the CAPE has never been good at short-term timing. For sure. And therefore, that should have nothing to do with what your short-term expectations are. And the reality is that, a little as I was saying before, if we could say with certainty, which of course we cannot, that the market was going to be great for the next three, four years, people would want to be in it. Mm -hmm. And the notion that I'm going to stay out of the market for three or four years while it does great or be out of the market for three or four years while it does great or uh, suffer three or four years of terribleness. Look at the people that became perma bears after 2007-9 and got mm -hmm. totally whipsawed. And in reality- Hear it all the time. I got out in 08, but I thought people were crazy jumping back in in March 09. Yeah. And I've sat on the sidelines for seven years. That is not a rare statement. No, it's, it's, it's more common than not. It's what behavioralism says people do. You know, so again, I was, in the earlier segment, I mentioned listening to John Bogle yesterday, and I, I admire the man greatly, but he, he said some things that are just wrong. Such uh, as? Uh, well, the first part of what he said here was right. He said that uh, one of the things that slowed down the growth of passive was that the 80s and 90s were two decades back-to-back -back with 17% average annual S&P 500 returns. That seems reasonable. And that's true. And then he said... And uh, the average mutual fund uh, did a couple of percent worse than that. Equity mutual fund did a couple of percent worse than that. Got about 15. And he said since investors- Sounds probable. Yeah. He said, so since investors were getting 15, they didn't really care so much about relative returns because the high absolute returns have made them happy. All that sounds plausible. But the mm -hmm. reality is that that's wrong. The reality is they didn't get anything like close to 15% because as all the behavioral studies show, people in and out at all right. the wrong times and they typically get about half the return of the equity funds because they in and out them at all the wrong times. The, the Dalbar study yeah, shows people underperform their own investments, which on the surface sounds ridiculous, but, but for normal. your reasons. It's normal yep. for behavioral purposes. And so in reality, what he said that was wrong is that in that period, people didn't get 15% returns. They got returns that look more like seven. And they uh, actually switched quite a lot from this to that and chase things. And in the mid 90s and 94 and five, before the market took off, they got terribly despondent. Mm -hmm. And it was all that period where, you know, the, uh, in, 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 uh, 1992, George Herbert Walker Bush is running for re-election and he's saying the recession's over and people are saying, no, it's not. And Bill Clinton's saying it's the economy, stupid. Well, in retrospect, the recession was over, right. but that's not the way people felt mm -hmm. and people voted with the way they felt. And also they invested the way they felt. And that's the problem. People invest the way they feel and the way they feel is almost always backward looking. And, and they in and out at all the wrong times, and that generates much more costs than anything else. And there's all these studies going back to things like Dalbar that are perverse in that they show that things like load mutual funds do worse than no load mutual funds, but the people that invest in the load mutual funds do better than the people that invest in the no load mutual funds because they feel trapped in them and they hold them much longer, right. which that, is very perverse. That, that is. You know, I and, just, and then everybody says, I would never do that. 
<laughs> and then, of course, that's true for a very small percentage of the population. Right. Most people do that. I saw something very recently. On, I don't. I don't want to cite the wrong firm that wrote it, but they pointed out the difference between soft economic data like sentiment and actual hard economic data like GDP, sales, et cetera. And they said the gap between the sentiment and the reality is the biggest it's been as long as they've yeah. been tracking that. So, so another way to say that, Barry, that I've uh, become fond of is that uh, economic marginality as taught by Alfred Marshall, marginality has been marginalized. Marginality has been marginalized. Yes, the reality of economic marginality is that intuitively an idiot knows that uh, the difference between the viability of a loan for a CapEx project at today's interest rates versus a half a point higher or lower should be immaterial to whether mm -hmm. the CapEx project should go forward or not. Because if you can't justify the return at a half a point higher or lower from where we are today, it's got to be a pretty lousy project to begin with. And the fact is that it's really more about what hasn't been marginalized is a shift in animal spirits, which mm -hmm. is your sentiment point. And we really need to find ourselves in a CapEx sense and in all other ways uh, moving toward uh, that animal spirit that says, I'm not afraid because of agency risk, which you know, after 2009, CEOs were hunkered down for, for agency for sure. risk purposes. I am optimistic that this project will work and I'm going to invest in this project and make this improvement for the benefit of my customers and the world. And that's really a sentiment issue. It's not really uh, uh, interest rates are a quarter point higher, so I'm not going to move forward. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Ken Fisher. He is the executive chairman and co-chief investment officer of Fisher Investments, a 2,300-person firm managing just under $80 billion. He's the author of a number of best-selling uh, books on markets and investing. Let's talk a little bit about uh, an insurance product that you're pretty vocal about. I keep reading, why does Ken Fisher hate annuities? That That's an advertisement that I've seen online. Tell us about your views of annuities. Let's see. Um, let me just say the simple line. I hate annuities. Okay. Uh, uh, so I, I've why actually, why do you first of all let's define annuities for for most people it's a tax deferred product that is sold by insurance maybe. brokers with a fairly substantial six eight nine percent commission up front that essentially contains or more or more than nine percent hidden and, and essentially is a wrapper around mutual funds, equities, bonds, whatever you want to put in there that you can go out and purchase uh, from a broker. That is that a fair assessment? Annuities are a lot of different things. Okay. Annuities are a contract mm -hmm. of some type that is very complicated, almost always, that are almost never really understood by the consumer, even though they often think they understand them. Right. And they're almost always sold uh, on a misleading basis. Mm -hmm. uh, when I say that, when you actually take the contract and go through it with the customer, and oh, then, I don't want that. And then call the insurance, the number that's associated with the contract, where you get a service person, not the salesperson, uh -huh. and you say, "Now, does this mean this, or does it mean that?" And then they tell you what it really means. The customer is almost always appalled, 
And they, in that regard, I say they're always, almost always sold on a misleading basis. So, you know, the sales guy will say something like, well, where else can you get a guaranteed 6% return? Except for that's going to be a return of their capital, not a return of, not an income return. It's not a return like we think of in the investing world. It's a return of their capital, which anybody can do for themselves just by taking their principal, putting it wherever they want and taking X percent of it out. Right. You, you, on that basis, you can have a 35% return until you run out of money. You just return your right. capital Three and spend years. it. There right. you go. And so, so what about- Exactly, um, invest it in nothing and have a 33% return. What, one of the more interesting years. aspects of the change in fiduciary rules, which is, um, I, at this point, I assume everybody knows, but on the off case that we're, we're not, people aren't as file, tracking this as closely as we are, uh, the last administration changed the rule uh, for governing uh, retirement plans, and that can include 401ks and 403bs and IRAs and things like that, and said that the advisor has to treat the client, um, has to operate in the client's best interest, which the current administration is not sure they want to continue that rule. But since the fiduciary rule chains were announced, many of the big insurance Insurance companies that underwrite annuities have seen their sales fall off a cliff, especially with people who service 401ks and 403bs. So what what is your view of the fiduciary rule and what that might mean for, for annuity sales? I think it's uh, a stupid rule with great intent. Okay. Uh, when you actually look at the devil in details, the devil in the details is that it's largely fraudulent in that uh, you get the BICE exemption, best interest right. contract exemption, which has some specific wording that you're allowed to kind of bury in a big complicated contract. So the customer, you know, is like sign here, sign there. Uh, you know, I got your best interest at heart, uh, but the government makes me have you do all this paperwork. So a uh, cleaner, simpler, best interest of the client is, end of the sentence would have been better? A, B, there's no governmental enforcement of this whatsoever, zero. Yeah, the but you, only don't you have the company compliance enforcing these sort of things when the, the insurers- I doubt the, that they'll even know. They haven't known in the past. Uh, <laughs> thirdly, uh, the only enforcement is a claimant's lawyer. Uh-huh. This, this is a this is set up for PIABA, the Public Investors Arbitration Bar Association, right. of which I don't have a problem with PIABA, but the reality is it is the only enforcement arm of this. There is no part where the government comes in at any point in time and says, you- Company X have violated the fiduciary standard. And now, therefore. And therefore, we are doing something to you. That doesn't happen under this law. This law, in my opinion. Toothless? Yes. Well, no, no, I, I wouldn't go that far. It's kind of like it's got a rotted tooth dangling out the side of an otherwise <laughs> empty mouth. And that rotted tooth is, 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 the, is the claimant's bar. But last and year, when, when this was announced, we saw a ton of motion from everyone from Bank America, Merrill Lynch, down to small one-person shops, and having to adjust to the change in advisory That's standards. because I don't think they actually understand. I think you'll what you'll see if it goes forward mm-hmm. is them moving that way at first and then slowly backsliding into what they've traditionally done, which is to do a word that's otherwise profane on the radio to their customers. <laughs> okay. So- 
right, I'm sh- I'm sure that that won't make it through the censors. But um, let me ask you one Doing more question. Doing things backwardsly? I mean, people have done things backwardsly forever, Barry. Yeah, Come okay. on, get these censors to lighten up a little bit. So what do you do when uh, a new prospective client comes to Fisher Investments and you're looking at their portfolio and you say, what is this? Oh, that's an annuity I bought some years ago. Are you just stuck with that? Or can you work your way out of that without it being an egregious problem for the investor? Again, an annuity is a specific contract, so there's not a blanket rule you can say about all annuities, but blanket rule that it can say is that we have our people who are specialized in this, so we'll look at that contract, take the customer and call the number associated with that, go through it with the client so they really understand what the contract is, Mm -hmm. and if they wanna get out, we will pay the fee that's the penalty fee to get them out under certain circumstances, which they then amortize rolling forward against their uh, uh, costs of being a client with us. Huh. And the, I think we're the only people in the world that do that. What we do is perfectly legal, and uh, it's legal in all 50 states. Yeah, why wouldn't that be? Uh, well, there's a lot of uh, annuity salespeople that don't think it should be legal. We actually get questions periodically from uh, state insurance commissioners that don't actually understand what we do, and they right. say, well, "How can you be doing this?" This is a garbage contract. No, I, I, and I, I'm- no how can how can we don't say things like that to them? But they say, <laughs> "You know, how can you be doing this in our state?" And then we explain it to them, and then they say, "Okay," um, but they don't know at first because they don't really know what we're doing, and until they know what they're doing, why, why wouldn't they want to ask? And uh, then um, the reality is that, as I said earlier. It is almost never true that these people, customers, really understand what the annuity contract does correctly, and they're almost always appalled when they truly find out. And while there are exceptions to that, they're rare, and um, and I'm delighted for the exceptions, but almost always, whatever it was they thought they were gonna do with the annuity, mm-hmm. there's a better way to do by owning principal underlying securities. Let's do that a different way. Fundamentally, what the insurance company does is takes the money, invests it in a bunch of securities with a lot of fees put on top, and somehow you're supposed to get this magical, spectacular return. Well, if that's the case, why aren't these the greatest active managers in the world, and why haven't they actually come to take all of the business that Passive does away from all the Passive people? Because they're so great at doing this stuff that they can put these complicated big fees on doing the same things that other people would do. The fact is that's all nonsense. The fact of the matter is they buy principal underlying securities. The people can accomplish the same end result if done correctly with principal underlying security and have it be much cheaper. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Ken Fisher. He is an author, raconteur, preserver of redwood forests, and perhaps most famously, uh, a well-regarded stock picker. Tell us about the process that you use to select stocks. Uh, It's called lousy. Um, I'm not really a good stock picker. Um, I'm thought of as a stock picker in some ways, but I'm really not, what what I'm good at doing is sort of like somebody that goes fishing and I figure out uh, a, a good pond to fish in, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to actually being good at getting the fish specifically. Right. So um, if you can pick the right pond to fish in- It helps a lot. That That's half the battle, isn't it? Uh, so I would describe myself 
as a top-down guy, not a bottom-up guy. Okay. And most of the world kind of sees itself as bottom-up. E- explain the difference between the two for people who may not be uh, insiders understanding that. So the, w- the way I would start looking at the world is I would say I'm managing against this part of the world here. Mm-hmm. And it has- Geographically whatever, or- it could be the S&P 500, could be the world, could be IFA, could be- Whatever your uh, benchmark whatever. is. You, you pick the benchmark. And then I say, it's made up of this stuff in these proportions. And then I think these are the parts of the world in those proportions that would do better or worse. And I'm gonna wanna overweight here and underweight there. Mm -hmm. And that would be both by things like geography, but also things like uh, sector and things like size and things like valuation. Mm -hmm. I'm not a constant guy to wanna be a value guy or a constant guy to wanna be a growth guy because sometimes the one does better than the other. Sometimes small stocks do better, sometimes big stocks do better. Sometimes foreign stocks do better, sometimes US stocks do better, on and on and on. And so I winnow that down And that leads me to what I was earlier kind of referring to as the ponds you want to be in. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I say, so now I need to own, if I'm going to be overweight to this and underweight to that and this and that, then I need to own, you know, five out of these 17. And then I'm going to look at those 17 and, and I need to own three of these 20. And, and that's where the stock picking comes. It's extracting, mm-hmm. the, the actual stock picking is extracting those from the ones that fit the criteria. But by the time you get down to selecting individual stocks, you've already made a number of decisions yes, yes, in yes, terms yes, yes, of yes, yes, yes. valuation, capitalization, location, sector, et cetera. These are allocation decisions. It, it's almost, the individual stock is almost irrelevant in Not that. completely, but it's a, almost. It, 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 it comes toward the end of the process. Mm-hmm. And then that decision comes to where I'm prepared to throw out some of the baby with the bathwater. So I look at the at the at the at the universe of those and then I say, okay, I want to throw out the ones that have like funny accounting because I always distrust funny accounting. Sure. Uh, that doesn't always mean that they're bad, but it means they're different and I want the category. So if they do things if they're weird for the category, I'm going to throw them out too. They might be exceptionally good, mm-hmm. but I'm prepared to throw out exceptionally good. F- funny accounting always means increased risk of something untoward happening. But, 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 but it's not just funny accounting. That's right. But it's not just that. It's also uh, if it's in a sector, but it doesn't really seem like it's the sector and it mm-hmm. doesn't act like the sector. I want that quality. So... Uh, so I throw a bunch out, and then I look among the others for what I call competitive advantages. And competitive advantages are things like low-cost production, high relative market share, uh, superior distribution system. And then I look to see is the management aware truly of their relative competitive position, and are they doing things to try to maximize that? And I am a fan of uh, Mr. Buffett's line that, you know, when uh, – and I'm not sure that I'm paraphrasing him perfectly – but that – when a bad management meets a great business model or vice versa, it's the management's reputation that's likely to change, not the mm-hmm. business. Uh, great, great businessmen don't usually turn a lousy business into a great one. It could happen, but it's not the usual thing. And lousy businessmen don't usually destroy a great business model. Um, it, it does happen, but it's not the usual. Usually, if lousy businessmen become the head of, of a great business model, they become seen as great soon. Um, and... Uh, so I'm really looking for those attributes, and then that finally comes the valuation feature last. Uh, I've, I've never been a believer that valuations are predictive of much of anything. Uh, and there's a time, in fact, where I want high valuations because that's the time where people are paying up for quality and sure. up for perception. That, that's the 1990s versus the 1970s. Well, it's actually last year. Uh, okay, and last year. Well, I, I use the 1990s as an example 
expensive stocks became more expensive and you had great returns. In the 70s, stocks were cheap and they got a whole lot cheaper. So, so a standard thing that happens, uh, you know, one of the things that's important in thinking about the market in general is, is you know, people say, and it's not true, that um, markets hate uncertainty. What markets hate is rising uncertainty. Markets like high levels of uncertainty that are falling. Mm-hmm. If you got high levels high of levels uncertainty of that are falling, mm-hmm. you're moving to lower levels of uncertainty, and markets like that a lot. So when that happens, and you G- give me a for instance on that, I have to wrap my head around that. When when do we have high levels of uncertainty that falling? are falling? Last year is a perfect example. At the beginning of the year, you got 16 Republicans running for president. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows who's going to nominee going to be. You got five people running on the Democratic side. Most people think Hillary Clinton will be the nominee. Then you don't know which one of those will win. You got a Brexit vote coming up. Nobody knows what will happen, but it scared people a lot. There was a lot of, at, at the beginning of the year with the correction that occurred, a lot of fears about China implosion. Uh, you go on and on with uncertainty at the beginning of last year. By the time you get to the end of last year, all that's gone away. We get mm-hmm. a winner. Well, but you have that. The political uncertainty goes away, but you still have no. It doesn't all go away completely, of, but it falls. It falls. It doesn't but, go away completely. When Mr. Trump gets elected, right? We still have now. A you lot have of a new set about, of uncertainty. Yeah, but it's less than we had before. Is yeah, there going to be a trade the, war? Is there going to be the what's going to happen to the dollar? Are, yeah, are so, we going to so have? We're still in a process of falling mm-hmm. uncertainty, and I don't want to get into you know fighting about right now. But but we've gone through a period of falling uncertainty, and we're going to continue this year into more falling uncertainty, and that's why we have a bull market. But in that, as you have falling uncertainty, you typically extend forecasts further out into the future. And as you extend those forecasts further out into the future, people become more growth-oriented. Huh, that's interesting. Let, let's, let me shift gears on you a little bit. Uh, we keep reading that private companies want to stay private for longer. And, and if you look at the universe, at least in the U.S., of number of public companies, there, there were 7,000 companies that were publicly traded 20 years ago. Now that's down to 4,000. The joke is the Wilshire 5,000 is now, I think, 3,700, something like that. What does this mean for the process of stock selection? What does this mean? Uh, what does this say about uh, the environment publicly traded companies find themselves in? Well, I think the two are somewhat separate issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Thinking of it from the public company's viewpoint, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley increased the costs for small companies going public. The uh, IPO market has uh, not been buoyant because, you know, if in the John Templeton phraseology, bull markets are born on pessimism, grow on skepticism, mature on optimism, and die of euphoria. And we clearly have had a very long bull market that's been what I've referred to uh, for a long time as the most joyless bull market in history because we haven't had those multiple years of very high annual that's a, returns. That's a great phrase, and the most joyless bull market. I've been calling it. joyless. I've been calling it the most hated bull market, but joyless is a different component there. It's clearly been a bull market. It's clearly been long, and it's been joyless. And what that means is we haven't gotten to the exuberance part, and it's usually in that optimism transitioning to exuberance to get high levels of IPO. You know, in my uh-huh. 1987 book, I – you know, wrote a lot about how IPO means it's probably overpriced. And <laughs> the fact of the matter is that IPOs are done at the pricing benefit of the company, at the sure. issuer, not the pricing benefit of the consumer. Investing public. And yeah. so in the process of this, we haven't really gotten to that phase. Regulatory costs are higher because of Sarbanes-Oxley. The public has become, in the aftermath of 2007-9, often critical of things that relate to public companies in terms of attacking people. People don't like to, management executives, people don't like to be attacked. Uh, And so you say, why do I want to do that? And then 
there's actually lots of uh, what are thought of as alternative lending practices now that allow people to borrow money uh, at what to, again, going back to my point about the traditional Alfred Marshall concept of economic marginality has been marginalized. Mm -hmm. The fact is paying up a little bit in the private market for a loan market is actually cheap compared to equity capital today on an after-tax basis. So, you know, going back to the the so-called infamous 1990s Fed model, and forget about the treasury rate, but think about corporate rates and think about tax rates and adjust them, it's actually much cheaper and better for the company on average, unless you're thought of as a very low quality company, to be borrowing money rather than issuing stock. So staying private seems to be a rational decision. Yeah, because, you, because why do the other? If people want to find your works, where where's the best place for them uh, to go to read about some of your views, commentary, and everything? Well, A, uh, I still uh, write a monthly column as I have for four years uh, at the Financial Times, and mm-hmm. you can go to their website. Uh, my older stuff is, you know, all on Forbes still. Mm-hmm. Uh, I uh, write around in other places, and I'm hoping to find a new home post Forbes in America for things that aren't the Financial Times. Uh, I, I love the Financial Times; it's a great publication. Mm-hmm. And, and I encourage anybody to read the Financial Times because it really is the global business newspaper. I'm a subscriber. It's the global business newspaper, and if you don't think global in this era. You're actually barking up the wrong tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I just want to take a second to go off on a tangent. Sure. You know, America led the market for years and years now, and I believe that this is the year where foreign takes over in U.S. legs, and that that accelerates in the back half of this year. And I might be wrong about that, but it'll happen at some point if I'm wrong about it now. And the folks that, and I don't have a problem with passiveness, but the folks that are passive with U.S. only mm-hmm. uh, better be prepared then to be in a three, four-year period where they're not actually getting what they think of as as well as the other stuff. Uh-huh. And if, in fact, you want to be passive, you have to come to a self-searching argument when that moment occurs. Do you switch to a passive vehicle that gives you more foreign exposure? Mm-hmm. And if you do that, is that a passive decision or is that an active decision using passive vehicles? Uh, both. You know, if I'm doing this off the top of my head by memory, but I want to say the 10-year return for the S&P is about 100%, and the 10-year return for uh, Take Europe is flat, and that assumes dividends reinvesting. You, I don't know if we've had that big a gap for that long a period. Yes, we have. We have. Uh, but let me just say that in the long term, and this is so basic that people can't get it, in the long term, pricing is controlled by shifts in the supply of securities, not mm-hmm. demand. Demand doesn't fluctuate by as big a bandwidth as supply can right. because supply is created or destroyed by shifts in paper product. And if you got the right economics and a little bit of regulatory costs, you can overwhelm any level of demand. Mm-hmm. And in the long term, you will. In the short term, you won't. And in that, uh, in the long term, it is axiomatic. We have a very long history that shows that U.S. and foreign returns end up eventually in the same place. They just do it in wildly varying cycles. Right. And, and one leads for a long time, then the other catches up, then the other takes over. And it is axiomatic that eventually foreign catches up with U.S. And so then you can debate when. But the point is that the, the, the passive investor that's gone U.S. only has to be prepared for long periods where U.S. underperforms. So if you're a passive investor, you would advocate being a global yes. investor. I, I believe that in this era, if you do not, no matter what your tactics are going to be, if you don't think globally, uh, you, you know, there's quite a lot of, the, 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 I don't have any political arguments, but the 
political. I mean, I study politics, but I don't have any political arguments that I'm passionate about in terms of making. Mm-hmm. But the the populism movement is a nationalistic movement, right. uh, wherever it is, exists. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't also be thinking globally at the same time. Hmm. Makes sense. We have been speaking with Ken Fisher. He is the co-CIO and executive chairman of Fisher Investments. Be sure and stick around for our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue to talk about all things investing. Check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. What could your future hold? More than you think. Because at Merrill Lynch, we work with you to create a strategy built around your priorities. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member SIPC. Ken, thank you so much for doing this. This is It's always fascinating to, to speak with you. And My pleasure, Barry. It's always fun to speak with you. And I... Uh, there's so much stuff we didn't get to. I want to I wanna continue discussing. For, for people who are listening at home who either have heard of Ken Fisher or have seen his advertisements on um, the internet, you're, you're fairly ubiquitous. It, it's hard to Google anything and not see you come up, anything related to finance. We spend a lot of money advertising. Do you? We spend a lot of money doing a lot of things. People <laughs> see our advertising. I told you that earlier. Mm-hmm. And they think of us in terms of advertising. They just don't see all the rest of what we do. So what I find fascinating, uh, but by most definitions, over the past 30 years, 30 plus years, you've built what is essentially the largest RIA in, in America. By any standard other than uh, raw AUM, where financial engines is bigger, but in all other ways than just straight AUM, we're bigger than financial right. engines. Right, and they're really a four, mostly 401k provider. They're for not- For large defined contribution right. plans, for very large defined you're, contribution You're a registered investment advisory servicing- Com- Yeah, uh, high net worth individuals and institutions. Mm-hmm. How many clients do you guys have at this point? 40,000. And 2,300 employees. Yeah. That sounds like you figured out how to scale something that most other people are having a hard time scaling. Well, that's, I'm, I'm unable to speak for most people, but <laughs> we're comfortable with the business we do. I mean, the fact of the matter is that uh, we have a very low termination rate and basically we have happy clients and we operate in uh, lots of places. And uh, we're not, I mean, we, as I've said often, we don't have any market share. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're bigger than others, but we don't have any market share. We're a peanut. Right, eighty You're, billion dollars is not a lot of money uh, in a world where there's, uh, you know, sixty trillion dollars yeah, in exactly. investable assets. Plus, what's a yeah. couple of billion dollars? But that said, within the universe of uh, advisory firms, you're essentially the largest. I'm by, by fascinated. I'm fascinated by the business side of that and the steps you took when you took them to grow that business because. Listen, the whole world of people in the in finance, uh, this is what I think a lot of people don't understand. That guy got lucky. He was born on third base, that sort of stuff. The universe exists as it, as it exists at any given moment. You are looking at the world of finance at that time and said, I think I'm going to do this, this, and this. And then 30 years later, oh, look, we're running $80 billion. That's an amazing process to me because... Everybody is essentially looking at or has access to look at the same things, but not everybody reaches the same conclusions and executes the same plan to to go forward. And I, I'm just fascinated by 
how you've accomplished what you've accomplished. It is called Masters in Business, after all. Well, you know, as I told you the last time that I was here with you, uh, I'm a youngest brother, and my older brothers were, by definition, older, bigger, stronger. Mm -hmm. Uh, Both of them happened to be smarter. And (laughs) I knew when I was a little kid that if I wanted something, I couldn't want what they wanted and take them head on. It just wouldn't work. And so I had to try to be, this is kind of the beginnings of me being what some people might call contrarian, but I had to figure out either different things I wanted or going about getting them a different way. Mm-hmm. And that's been true for me all of my life. I've always had the little brother complex. Right. And the little brother complex from the beginning has had me trying to figure out how I could get what I wanted in the face of superior competition. And there's an abundant amount of big guns out there ready to shoot. Mm -hmm. And so then I've also been prepared to operate by trial and error and trying this and it doesn't work. And you can do a huge amount of things on a small scale and test them and see if they work. And then if they work, do them on a bigger scale. And if they don't work, move on to the next one. Right. And so, you know, again, yesterday uh, when I was here in town, Uh, Investment News was giving me this award as one of their inaugural innovation winners. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've just done a lot of things that people in our realm of endeavor always thought were stuff either you couldn't do or you shouldn't do. Not that they were illegal, but, you know, for example, you talk about our advertising. People in our realm of endeavor have never advertised the ways we do. We started off doing direct mail, and then we moved into direct email, and Mm -hmm. then we moved into internet banners, and we just kept rolling in marketing tests over time, over a long period of time, mind you, too. This has now been 20 years that we've been doing Are you still doing direct mail? Sure, absolutely. It's still effective. Yeah, we do it differently than we used to, and it's not as effective as it was at first because when we were doing it at first, it was like going back to my fishing analogy, the first time that you you know, you know cast your uh, line into a clear pool and there's no fish that have been taken out of the pool at all, sure. your odds are greater than after you've taken 10 fish out. And so, but yes, direct marketing works for us, and we know more about direct marketing, on the other hand, than we did when we started. Sure. Uh, you know, we're not maestros at this. Uh, I disagree. I think you're an evil marketing genius. I've described you that, not evil, but a, a brilliant. First of all, if the, we were competing direct head on with Procter and Gamble for their business, we would get our clock cleaned. But we're you're not. But that you don't good. know anything about selling toothpaste. I, and, no, no, but I guys, don't know anything about marketing compared to Procter and Gamble. That's my point. And and the fact of the matter is, yes, I don't know anything about toothpaste. <laughs> I, I have used the stuff, but but occasionally, <laughs> occasionally. Um, but no, well, I, it's every Saturday, whether you need it or not. Uh, I forget some Shampoos, Saturdays. I forget and, some Saturdays. But, but but you but you have to admit your approach to uh, marketing to individuals has been wildly successful compared within the industry. What we thought for a long time was that there was no reason you couldn't do these kinds of things Mm -hmm. in our realm of endeavor that other people weren't, but were doing in other realms of endeavor. And what I've tried to do a lot in my career is to do things that people were doing in other realms of endeavor that they weren't in this, the 40 40 Act Advisory World. And uh, so, you know, we were early in computerization. Mm-hmm. Uh, we uh, have all kinds of service models that we use that other people don't do. Uh, we're very, we've customized sales in ways that other people haven't. G- give uh, me a for instance. I, by the way, I love the annuity thing, how, how you buy people out of their contracts. What do you do that's unique in terms of service that other people don't do? 
So we have uh, a whole series of different types and different sizes of customized client-only seminar and events Mm -hmm. to communicate to them how we're seeing things about various things. And that's because we've learned that different people receive information best differently. Sure. And so we have a huge, we, 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 we have clients at over, we have over 57,000 client event contacts a year where clients go to events and interact. This is not, these are not sales events, these are service events where clients go to these events of different types all around the English speaking world uh, and a little bit in Germany and uh, talk to our people, some small events, some big events, we separate completely sales from service. So our salespeople do no service. Mm-hmm. It's completely specialized. We're extreme in specialization of labor and we, and we have been forever. Mm-hmm. Um, because I didn't want the salesperson to be able to do post-sales service because if the salesperson um, does the boondoggle on the salesperson, on the customer and, 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 and you know, lies and cheats and steals, and they do post-sales service. They can keep it. They can keep hiding it. So you want someone it. else, a second set of eyes looking. We want at a that. prophylactic protection right. at the point of client intake, and and so at the point the contract signed, the service people come in, take over, and start all over again. Right. And they don't get commissions. So they're sitting there seeing, and the salespeople know that. So the salespeople are less prone to want to do the uh, the, the the the. That makes sense. And you build in a structural oversight that's even separate from the compliance department, just your process has it. Because it provides a prophylactic protection. Uh, Likewise, uh, our orientation in general is somewhat different, I think, than most people because we push very hard uh, what we consider to be needs-based investing versus what we see as Goals-based investing, meaning and by that, not a financial plan, or no, no, no. What what I mean is, an awful lot of people ask client questions like, "So, what's your risk tolerance?" And Which you know, I, I did work twenty question, years ago right. that they can't. It, it it's it's like, whatever it, the market's doing the past half hour, and now yes, uh, exactly. If the you, you understand that, but yeah. but I don't think most of the world fully gets the, that. It's a little like a boxing analogy where most people haven't haven't been hit in the gut hard enough right. enough times the way a, a good boxer would to know right. how they react when they get hit in the gut. The, the good boxer actually knows what his risk tolerance is to a gut punch, but right. the average person doesn't, and the market gives you gut punches all the time. Sure. And so we focus on needs orientation and then adapting the service to whatever that recent thing is that's a gut punch mm. to keep the customer going to what they need. And what they need is almost always a much longer time horizon than they think right. because unlike prior generations, People are going to live longer than they ever have before. They need to stretch their money much further than they ever have. And the myopic view that says when I'm 65, I need to get real conservative was perfectly fine in the days that defined benefit pension plans were first invented and people lived to be 65, retired, and died at 70. But now you're probably talking on average – and, and this is not what the actuarial tables say. This is what I'm telling you probably happens on average 30 years. And that 30 years- Mid-90s. Yeah, because people's lives keep getting longer right. within their lives. And, and even more complex, if you make it to 75, it means you didn't die as a teenager. You didn't die in childbirth. You didn't die all these previous windows where, where there are these big 
demographic surges, and the odds are you're going to go another X years. So and ironically to that point, Barry, if you actually look at the uh, survivors of the Donner Party, mm-hmm. the survivors of the Donner Party, who by definition were tougher than the non-survivors, right. lived to be really, really old, all of them, because they were just tough. And the fact is that longer living leads to longer living. But in this day and age, within that longer time period, we have all of these advances being made in medicine that push our lives longer and longer. Sure. When I was young, when you were young, senior sports didn't exist. No when such I was, thing, right. It, it didn't I exist. just was reading about this 90-year-old marathoner. Uh, astonishing. It's, it, 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 because in the old days, a guy got to be post-retirement age and he sat in a chair. Right. And of course- Waited w- to w- die. And of course, women didn't get to retirement age because it didn't work. And that was just a different world. And, and the world has shifted and now, your time horizon post-retirement is so much longer, but people haven't emotionally learned to adapt to that and plan for that long time horizon sure. that needs to really say the most brutal thing that I can do is run out of money when I'm really old. And that's Aging the biggest, poverty is the most brutal thing that you could do to somebody. That is the biggest question that you hear from people, not in their 20s and 30s, who have a long enough time horizon to save, but in their 50s, hey, I'm concerned I'm going to run out of money when I'm filling the blank 75 or 80. Well, you know, one of the problems we've always had in behavioralism is people don't save enough. And I'm mm-hmm. not, you know, going to get on the soapbox about saving. People are what people are. But then when they get to be retirement age, whatever it is they have, they need to plan for a long time. And so if that's retirement age and they don't have the money, that means they need to find another way to work. Right. Uh, and, uh, oh, well, I'm just going to get money from this or that or the other, Social Security, what have you. Well, if you think you're going to rely on some dependency, right. you've made yourself a dependent. And that's a tough go, too. You know, pe- people get these things wrong, but we have a long life. Young people, mm-hmm. young people ought to do age-appropriate stuff. People always ask, not always ask me, people often ask me, so what kind of advice would you give to an 18-year-old? And my view would be, well, if you're an 18-year-old guy, you know what I do? I chase girls. <laughs> and if you were an 18-year-old girl, I'd worry about how the guys chase you. And I think that's age appropriate. And you know, it's better to be chasing girls when you're 18 than chasing girls when you're a grandpa. That's for darn sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact of the matter is age-appropriate activity is one that people have a hard time scoping out correctly. But part of age-appropriate activity is realizing that you're going to live to be much, like long, much longer likely than you envision that you will. When I was young, I bought a term insurance policy and then I outlived the need of the term insurance policy and it sat in a drawer for a long time. When I got to be post 50, I went back and looked at it and in the 25 years from 25 to 50, Mm -hmm. the life expectancy of a 50 year old had in, I looked at the terms that went with it and the life expectancy of the 50 year old had grown by seven years in those 25 years. More or less, I got almost a year for every three that I lived added on to what the life expectancy of a 50-year-old would be. Uh And that process isn't over yet. We're still extending life as we know it. And we're also making better quality of life later. And so all of the features, even for, and again, we've got a lot of clients, we hear a lot of stories, uh, widows and divorced people in older ages trying to figure out things like, I'm 82 and my spouse died and now I want to move to be closer to where my grandchildren are and how do I go about finding some place where I can be an active healthy 82 year old because I am 
mm-hmm. because they've never thought about that before because they were living in the house they were living in. They weren't planning to move. They weren't planning to change. And activities in your 80s aren't something that anybody ever said in school. Oh, here's what you should do when you're in your 80s because we don't have stuff like that. So I know I only have you for another 15 minutes or so. Is that right? What time are we out of here? 12.30? 1 o'clock? Ask Charlie. I think we have to be out at 12.30. Um, so let me jump into my favorite questions, and there are a few I really want to go over. God, you know, there's so many questions we did not get to. You're you're easy to talk to when we... we... That's because I'm verbose. <laughs> you ask a question. Verbose is good. And Verbosity and I, is good on an interview And show. I sucked the airspace out of the interview. That's right. No, you did not. 1230. All right. So I'm going to I'm gonna go over my five favorite um, questions. Tell us about your early mentors. Who were the people who influenced the way you looked at the world? Uh, well, of course, with, with almost everyone, my mother and my father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and your father especially was a famous author and... Uh, yeah, but when I was very young, he was a father. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was actually... Uh, marvelous in weird ways. He was a weird man. He was un- when I say weird, I mean out the bell curve. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was weird. I don't mean weird as bad. I mean weird. No, as I know exactly what you mean. And he was statistically unusual. He had Asperger's before Asperger's was understood. Uh-huh. And uh, on the other hand, he was this marvelous bedtime storyteller. And I didn't understand at the time that in the bedtime stories he was telling me, he was telling me what he wanted me to be. Um, I still choke up when I think about him. What he wanted me to be. When I grew up, he was telling me in these fictional stories that he made up what he wanted of me. Was he making these stories up? Yeah. Like right off the top of his head. I don't know that. Mm -hmm. I never knew if he was making them up off the top of his head or if he pre-planned them. Uh, But they were different every night. Sometimes he told me the same stories over and over again. Okay. Because those were the ones he really wanted to drill into my head. Mm -hmm. And then uh, also my grandfather was terribly important to me. Mm -hmm. One died before I was born and I, of course, didn't know him. But my paternal grandfather and I were very close and I idolized him. And he was was a big influence on my life in other ways, in in ways of what's good, what's bad, what Mm -hmm. do you do, how do you do things. Uh, He was an important role model to me. He was in a lot of ways. Uh, there was a guy named Clarence Bennett after he, after my grandfather died that became a su- kind of a substitute grandfather for me. Uh, he was a former New York life insurance guy, and uh, he was also a great tree explorer and a great tree ex- explorer and a great explorer. Mm-hmm. Um, he discovered the largest uh, and oldest uh, uh, Western juniper in the world, still famous tree, the Bennett juniper, mm-hmm. and uh, he be- kind of became a, 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 a very famous tree. Uh, when 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 I became older and I got involved in trees and all my tree buddies knew that I'd known Clarence Bennett when I was young, they were like, "Whoa!" Um, anyway, um, now by the way, I, I have to just stop you and ask. So when you say when I became a, a tree guy, let let's dig into that. You you have committed to advancing the world's understanding of of redwood forests and and the ecology they represent. You endowed at Humboldt State University the Ken Fisher. Redwood Forest uh, Ecology Chair. Uh, so that's how you, uh, Bennett, is what led you to your interest in Redwood Forest. No, and trees? I was already interested in being in the woods. You were there I, I, when I could, I could hop over my parents' back fence and be out in the woods when I was a little boy, and I just mm-hmm. loved being in the woods and I loved everything about it. And I already loved that, but Clarence Bennett had a huge impact on me. He he lived not that far away, and I could I worked for him when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, I picked fruit for him and I tended his vegetable gardens, and he was retired by then, and. Uh, and, and he was a great guy, and uh, and 
uh, and he in- influenced me hugely. But then I went to forestry school at Humboldt State, mm-hmm. and then I decided that'd be a lousy career. But I maintained it. My love for forests, and yes, I've done that. But I also, you know, have finance research in Douglas Fir, uh, 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 Western Spruce, uh, uh, Western Red Cedar, Tujapakata, and uh, I'm big on what you would view as the ecology of big and tall and old tree species. I'm the code discoverer of the single oldest known uh, um, uh, Sequoia sempervirens mm-hmm. uh, extant in the world, uh, which, what do you, is, which exists in Redwood National Park. What do you make of the pushback against anthropogenic global warming and, and what's going on with the EPA today? Looks like we're seeing a big shift at the government level versus the past uh, eight years. I don't really get into all that stuff very much. I can tell you this, which nobody wants to believe, mm-hmm. um, but I know it's true because I've been fundamental to the re- again most most big most big tall and old Western tree science in recent years has been done under my largesse, mm-hmm. and uh, we've done the only long-term project on the health of redwoods in relation to climate change. Mm-hmm. And they don't give a rat's darn. They really don't. They just blow off whatever climate does. Right. By that, I don't mean in the short term they necessarily No, you're talking about over thousands they of years. They are so adaptive mm-hmm. compared to other species that they know how to wiggle and jive and move to gain competitive advantage against other tree species and uh, trees sort of invest in this versus that at a point in time. Right. And they know they're more adaptive. Like, uh, I mean, a, a sempervirens is a hexaploid. It's got a much more complex chromosome makeup than mm-hmm. other tree species. And it just knows how to take advantage of the circumstance to its no advantage. No matter what the circumstances are. Well, you drop a nuclear bomb on it, that's not going to be the I case. Mean within but reason. climate, climate. <laughs> right. Not uh, weather, climate. Climate. So, so if it's appreciably cooler drought, or appreciably warmer. You get drought, you get heavy rain, you get warmer, you get colder. Now, now mind you, that's, again, shy of like some- Catastrophe, an ice age. Normal climate that would include the incremental changes that we talk about when we talk about climate change. Mm-hmm. I'm not, again, talking about a, you know some-, some uh, huge asteroid from outer space hits the world right. you know something like even that even an ice age where you have glaciers coming south off the north pole uh, that that's a once a i don't know how how many 25,000 in terms of anything that would happen for our grandchildren's lifetimes mm-hmm. uh redwoods will adapt in terms of nature mm-hmm. uh not only redwoods douglas firs are more adaptive than people ever thought western red cedars more adaptive than people ever thought these trees got to where they are because of that feature through lots of stuff in the past. And in fact, redwoods are gaining relative share in forests to in, in, within their landscape to other tree species in warming climates. Hmm. Redwoods gaining market share. That yeah, redwoods dominate. So let's talk about, you, you mentioned you men- mentors. What investors influenced your approach to, to investing? Well, in a textbook sense, you know, the standards of the past. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. pe- people like um, Buffett. Um, sure. But um, people like uh, Graham, um, my father, uh, John Templeton personally. I was a big Templeton fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, he was just a marvelous human being. Uh, Seems and, fascinating. 
Oh no, he was a great guy. He was he was. I mean, his spirituality, his spirituality led him to a form of internal calmness that's rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that he would make investment decisions without the emotion that so many other people had, because he was more at peace with himself than most people are. Huh. That, that's um, interesting. And and of course, as we all know, most people's emotion is their worst enemy when it comes to investing. Uh, now you, you you might deal with that this way, and you might deal with that that way. But he he was a very at peace human being, and uh, so th- th- those would be uh, the main ones. And uh, y- you know, then that's a good run that for. Oh no no, you know I I don't have anything unique. Um, you mentioned textbooks. Let's let's talk about books. This is the question people ask more than anything else. What are some of your favorite books? Well, my all-time favorite book is Hunting with Bow and Arrow by Saxton Pope. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pope was a friend of my grandfather's and was the uh, father of modern bow hunting and uh, had different impacts on me because a lot of other things that I like in life are sort of like hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I was young, I actually was very interested in bow hunting. I, I did bow hunting when I was young. Um, but I also am a big fan of uh, a, an old book by a guy named Frank Hibben called Hunting American Lions, uh, which is another book about chasing stuff because mm-hmm. ultimately investing is a different form of chasing stuff it's a metaphor I, I read it over and over and over again really um oh yeah and you know what it's also both of those books are really good for grandchildren mm-hmm. um and uh then i like um and uh, you, you're not going to find this surprising an old book by a guy named edgar cherry called uh, uh redwood and, and uh, california forests and there's only uh, 37 known copies in the world, and I own three of them. And I'm a big fan of that book. Can't go on Amazon, but you can you can get you, you can get reproductions of it on Amazon. So you can't get the original. Oh no, you, no. You, well, you know, if you find one, it probably cost you 10 grand. But mm-hmm. um, but uh, if you find one, let me know, and I'll buy it. Um, <laughs> I, I'd corner the market in that book. Um, uh, and then you know, when investing books, it's pretty much just the old standards mm-hmm. and all the old standards. When I was young, you know, I pretty much read all of them that I could get my hands on, uh, ranging from, you know, all of the standard names that you know, there's none, none of the standard give names. Us a, give us one or two, oh, plus, course, your, of, plus your dad's book. Of, of course, Intelligent Investor, Security Analysis by Graham, those mm-hmm. two classic Graham books. My father's book, you know, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits, which, you know, is still a great book. You, you, you have to take up any of those books like that and kind of adapt them in your mind for all of the modern technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, intuitively, that's you know p- people kind of forget that sometimes when they read that stuff. Those guys wrote those things without. I mean, my father operated in a world with a hand crank adding machine and a pencil, right? Sure. Uh, and it's and, different today. And we have a different world, but the principles largely apply. If you extract away, how would you have done things then with a pencil versus today with a computer? Um, uh, would be the same. Uh, but for example, I was always a big fan of of uh, Gerald Loeb's books. Uh, which a lot of people always decried, and 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 I think Gerald Loeb actually had a bigger impact on me. Um, my father knew Gerald Loeb pretty well, and he did not like Gerald Loeb. Um, but Gerald Loeb was actually uh, interesting in that Gerald Loeb brought understanding to commonplace investors that they did not have before he appeared on the on the on the horizon. He was in some ways sort of a Jim Cramer of his day. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's a valuable function in that. The battle for investment survival yes. is the, I couldn't pull that's, the- That's his iconic. Um, and then, and then, and then, of course. Uh, oh, and I'm having. Uh, a, I use Google. I cheated because I was having that same moment. Uh, 
there were all of the uh, Adam Smith books, and then uh, there's uh, all of the uh, the Great Crash, uh, and then there's the Heilbronner books. What are the Heilbronner books? Uh, all the economic ones, Robert Heilbronner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then, of course, then forgetting about those, you know, must reads are how to lie with statistics by Daryl Huff. Sure. Uh, I mean, if, if a, I encourage anybody ever to always take, uh, the, what I always considered the core education classes, you know, which include stat core economics, uh, you know, year of calculus. Uh, I mean, if you don't understand, if you don't understand marginality, calculus will get you to where you understand marginality cold. Heilbrunner, the one book I know is The Worldly Philosophers. Yeah, but, that's one of his classics. But, and The but, Making of Economic Society. So that's what I was going about to say. Teach, um, the Essential Adam Smith, Marxism For and Against, The Making of Economic Society, The Nature and Logic of Capitalism. He has a run of- Oh, how about great. Uh, the Human Prospect, Behind the Veil of Economics, Visions of the Future, The Debt and the Deficit, Force Alarms, and uh, he's got a huge run of books, Five Economic Challenges. Yep. Uh, I didn't realize he was that so prolific. Uh, and then, uh, uh, um, uh, if you can find Angus Black's two books, mm-hmm. Angus Black is really Roger Leroy Miller, um, but Angus Black's two books, uh, Radical's Guide to Economic Reality and the uh, Radical's Guide to Environmental uh, Reality, uh, they're actually classics. Uh, they're hard to find today. Um, but Roger Leroy Miller is the great economic textbook writer. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh, I mean, I think he, he- The Devil's Coven? No, that's a different Angus Black. Uh, One last Radical's lesson? Guide to Economic Reality and Radical's Guide to Environmental Reality. Angus Black. Yep, that was a pen name that he made. Uh, uh-huh. he, he was a University of Chicago PhD uh, from the 60s that uh, was a very good communicator. He's still around. He still really? exists. He's, well, he's older now. We're a radical's all, guide to economic, well, better than the alternative. Yeah, absolutely. A radical's guide to economic reality, a radical's guide to self-destruction, a radical's guide. So those are the two big ones. Yeah. Self-destruction he, I, and, and economic I, I, reality. I heard a lecture by him once when I was young, and in an hour, he he moved me along quite a lot in one hour. Because he, really? he was a great communicator. Uh I mean, I'd studied a lot of economics by the time I heard him, and he it was kind of like watching all the moving parts work together. Suddenly, mm-hmm. you, you see the engine working. It just clicks. Yeah, no, he, he's a great communicator. Um, and, uh, and you, you know, you, you ask me these questions, and there's so much that I forget about because it's been a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I and, warn people, these are the questions that require recall. Well, you know, you, the older you get, the more I worry about, do I have dementia? And, uh-huh. uh, and yeah, that started around 50. <laughs> I, but I used to have an encyclopedic memory of album names, songs. And now I like, can't remember uh, where I left the encyclopedia. Uh, it's just, it's just, so my wife likes to say, well, at a certain point, your head gets filled up with enough facts that if you want to enter a new one, you got to lose an old one. So um, let me get to my last few questions before they come kick us out of here. Let's talk about what you do to keep mentally and physically fit. And what do you do? What makes you think that I'm mentally and physically fit? Well, we were just talking about dementia. What, what do you do to stay entertained? What do you do to relax outside of the office other than go to the forest? Uh, well, I do spend uh, as much time as I can in the woods. Uh, I do try to take care of myself physically. Uh, I am um, 
when I was very young, I got captured um, by this female, and I've been a prisoner to her mm-hmm. ever since. Uh, and I um, like to spend time with her grandchildren. Okay. Uh, they're the most marvelous human beings that I've ever known. And uh, I, that's, they're a prime form of relaxation for me. And uh, although most people don't think of children as relaxing, almost every, grand, oh. almost every grandparent does. Uh-huh, of course. And, uh, well, they have the greatest grandkids they, they, in the world. Course, yeah, well, yeah, most of them are misled in that regard because I do. Mm-hmm. And um, they're, they're just wrong. And uh, <laughs> the, 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 you know, there's these age-old features. I mean, how in the world these children that you have that don't know a darn thing that grow up uh, and then have these most miraculous children. It's like somehow genes just skip a generation. Right. And um, so I uh, am a very heavy diet fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, st- I used to weigh a lot. I used to weigh uh, 100 pounds more than I weigh. Really? And I, I, well, I was younger then. And I worked very hard See, to- See, I used to weigh 100 pounds less than I weighed. I was, I was younger then. Do, do we just trade? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think I won the trade. Um, I, uh, I, so I spend- uh, a, f- a fair effort trying to, I, I've got a very bizarre diet and I focus on my uh, weight a lot. And When you I, say bizarre diet, what what makes your diet bizarre? Well, the, the greatest principle, because I when I weighed a lot more, I was prone to overeat a lot of things, mm-hmm. by definition, is that I try not to ever eat anything I like. That's a lot of discipline there. So yeah, you only it, eat things you don't really care for. No, that's not true i try to only eat oh. things i don't care for when you travel you get stuck with stuff that's the worst part of uh, traveling of, is the toughest but yeah. when i'm at home i only eat stuff i don't like such and, as oh I'm, I'm basically a vegetable and fruit guy and then for uh, i i eat a handful of walnuts every day mm-hmm. uh, at home and then i have to drink some milk for calcium and i also you know i mean i take vitamins and all that kind of nonsense but uh, stay with the not but, skip the vitamins. Uh, Unless you're really no, doing vi- a no, radical. No, ca- ca- calcium pills. Are you doing like the, a when radical? You get older, when you yeah. get older, you're going to worry about osteo. You're not that much older than me, dude. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell you. I'm not that far I, away I don't know that. how old you are, Barry. I know how old I am. That's right. like, The key thing is knowing yourself. I'm 66. I was going to say mid-60s yeah, at most, early 60s. And I'd like to live another 30 years and have that be a good life. And so I spend a lot of time taking care mm-hmm. of myself. The old joke, it's not the years, it's the miles. That's the. Uh, uh, I like. I, I, I'd like to have both. Uh, uh, I'd like to have years and miles. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, again, I, I walk a lot. Uh, on average, I walk about 20 miles a week. And I love this thing, even though it's annoying, because it gives me a baseline of how much I'm walking around. And they want you to do 10,000 steps a day, and I'm pretty consistently doing 15,000. I think the typing is probably sets it off a little bit. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm cheating a little bit. I take it off at the Is that the, the equivalent the to when, when we were young when they when they actually had phone books and you let your fingers through the walkie That's through not, the yellow not pages? Not quite, but it's every now and then I'll, I'll there are days when Young I people know, don't know about phone books. No, they don't. They, they I tell people about the post office people don't understand about. You know, you could be able to go to this building and give them a letter and they would send it somewhere. Like, what do you mean a letter? Like tea or people don't understand how it it's amazing to watch the transition and we've spent enough time watching the next generation come in that we learned how to use computers we've adapted to them computers are just part of the background there's always been computers to them so it's a very different interaction for to me it's this is still a thing of 
joy and wonder. To them, it just, what do you mean? It's a computer. There's always Well, to them, computer. it's obsolete because it's supposed to be mobile. Right. Well, the piece of glass that you carry around yeah. with you is a computer to them. It, but it, to us, it's a it miracle. Is a, it is a computer. Yeah. And to them, it's just part of the background. All right. Before they throw us out, let me get to my last speaking think, of, think of millennials. Of what, think of how my great-grandfather would have thought about life if my grandfather could have told him about truly what he would see by the time he died in the 1950s. Right. My great-grandfather would have thought that my grandfather was out of his gourd. And, and now, just from the 50s to today, it, it's 10x. It's, it's insane. All, all of my grandfather's generation saw more relative change, less That's absolute right. change. That's right. They went from er, they went from late industrial to late electronic, early electronic to... My, to late electronic to early computers. My, that, gran, my grandfather was born in 1875 before the Industrial Revolution took hold. Mm-hmm. And the Industrial Revolution is an 1880s thing in America. Right. And so the steam engine is really a thing of his youth in terms of mass in mm-hmm. America. That transition to go to there, to radio, mm-hmm. to telephones, to television, to airplanes, uh, to actually know that computers existed – not that the computers would exist like we have them now, but that they existed in the way IBM would have had them in 1950. Sure. Right, as opposed <laughs> to... So let me share something fascinating with you about airplanes. We were talking about the other day in the office about bad news and good news. And one of the examples that I used of good news, my head of research, Mike Batnick, did this whole thing about all this good news on a chart. And most of the good news that came out, you would never have thought twice about over the past decade, because it's just a tiny little thing. And, you know, even when the iPhone first came out, no one really paid much attention to how big a deal is it. But think about flight and think about 1903, Kitty Hawk, now that North Carolina has won uh, the NCAA. It's, it's, so I'll tie it into recent news. There were no newspaper articles. It never made the New York Times. They flew, I want to say a half dozen or a dozen times before the local, whatever you want to call it, newspaper or newsletter or whatever, had it like a paragraph mention, a blurb. Uh, The Wright brothers managed to get their heavier-than-aircraft to fly 50 yards. They've done it five or six times. Whoop-dee-doo. And yet, think of the impact of that. So even when you're in the midst of an incredible technological change— you may not even be aware of the significance of it. Forget centuries later, just a few decades later. It's, it's, I find that just fascinating. I'm pretty sure that people like the Wright brothers couldn't have predicted exactly how it would go, but that they would have thought that it would have been an important thing. The, they, this is significant. Yeah, we're, I we're think doing something they would have known it was something that mattered. They wouldn't know exactly how all that. I don't think anybody can forecast all those little wiggles with accuracy right. in the slightest. In the same way that, you know, when I was listening to John Bogle yesterday, he was talking about with confidence that, yes, for five years this wasn't working, but he was sure it was the right thing to do, mm-hmm. and that eventually, if we could survive. right. But that wouldn't say that the thing was wrong. It just implied that if he couldn't survive, someone else would probably have to do it later. Right. And that you'd have to be some crazy guy like he was to do that, which has right. always been true of anybody that was ever entrepreneurial about anything. Sure. You, you know, you're they're, doing they're always it, kind of the wingnut crazy guy. And, and, and you managed to do it before, you know, the Wright brothers probably didn't cash in a whole lot on right. flight. Um, Bogle is one of the lucky people who started young enough 
that 40 years later. But, hey. you know, the, the other one that they uh, awarded yesterday in the icon mode, I mean, they had mm-hmm. a bunch of us that were awarded in the innovator mode, and then they had these two that were awarded in the icon mode, and the other was Chuck Schwab. Sure. And the same thing, in a way, was true with Schwab when he first started. 75? Uh, well, when he first started, it wasn't a discount brokerage firm. When it first started, it was just a standard little brokerage firm that he then got the idea for the discount after he'd started the firm. Uh-huh. And then he went with that. And again, in the early days, Schwab, of course, was laughed at in San Francisco, really? where I was in my time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a young guy in the realm of endeavor at the time, and people laughed at Schwab in those days. And of course, a lot of times people start businesses that don't work and fail. There's lots of failures for every success. Sure. And yet Schwab was a tremendous success and a is- continuous innovator. How old is Chuck Schwab these days? Uh, I don't close know. Close to eighty, right? I don't know exactly, but he's uh, late, very late seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't know exactly. You know, anybody, anybody could look that up on Wikipedia. He's he's no longer the. You don't see him as the face of the firm as much, but he. You know, you've seen him around for a long, long time. No, he he had a huge impact as an innovator uh, for a long time, which is how he became an icon. Right, uh, but again, that does, again, th- this is this notion of the you know the instant success. The instant success does not happen. Even Bill Gates and Microsoft took a long time, had a huge impact on the world, but it took a long time before the world fully was doing that uh, in scale. Seventy nine, he is seventy nine years old. Yeah, so I was huh, you know I was too, more or less right. Not too shabby. Last two questions before they come throw us out of here. Uh, so. A millennial, a recent college graduate comes to you and says, I'm interested in getting uh, into the world of finance. What sort of advice would you give them? Uh, Talk to people that are about five years older than you are that have done it because they know more about it than I do. Mm -hmm. Older than them. Yeah, people that have done it recently. So you're saying it's a young man's game, not a, or young person's game, not- No, well, the course that they have to follow is different than the course that I had to follow once upon a time because the world has evolved. And the people that, that have done it recently understand that. So seek out young mentors for what I got to do. And then simultaneously remember that it's a long run. It's a long life. Uh, the people that think they're going to hit big and you know go retire in five years are barking up the wrong tree because that's not really the way the world works. Mm-hmm. You're in it for the wrong motivation. Uh, if you think you're going to agree to make if you if you're just in it to make money, you're doing the wrong thing. You know, I'm, as you said in the introduction, supposed to be something like the 184th richest person in America, and it was never about money for me. Mm-hmm. The money is a result. It's That's not a consistent a, theme I hear from people who I interview. The, the reality is if you're doing it for the money, you're not really doing it for the customers. Right. And if you're doing it for something other than the customers, you're barking up the wrong tree in the longer term. The the um, you mentioned how long it is. I, I love the expression: the days are long, but the decades are short. And that that really that is, is a great true. line. Yeah, I, I really like that. I I don't know who I'm stealing that from, but I'm sure some reader will tell us. And and lastly, what is it that you know about the world of investing in markets that you wish you knew 35 years ago when you were first uh, getting your legs underneath you? Uh, so maybe this sounds strange to you, but I wish that I would have understood, and I don't know it's 35 years ago, but 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. I wish that I would have understood the course and the transition that would occur to journalism. Really? 
That's interesting. Because I think journalism has uh, big impacts, for good and for bad, mm-hmm. on sentiment in investing. No doubt. And that that world has morphed quite a lot in ways that I try to understand, but I'm not sure I fully do. And uh, But I work at it a lot. And um, the fact is that in an awful lot of what we see in journalism today, journalism has lost its way and forgotten the core principles of journalism. And so much of journalism today does not start the way it did when I studied journalism in school, Mm -hmm. which is to lead with the five W's and the H. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. How. And from that lack in the lead, which was Mm -hmm. the way it was always supposed to be other than the opinion page, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, opinion's opinion, news stories are supposed to lead with the five W's and the H. Uh, now, so often you look in the news and you can't actually find early in the story anything but opinion. Mm-hmm. And it's you know thought to be in journalism school they teach you to be hard-hitting journalists. And so the stories are hard-hitting, but it's opinion. And that creates a lot of shrill that becomes noise to people. And Very people have so. a hard time getting to the facts. They get impatient. And so then you can parallel that with Gallup's uh, now uh, – 25-year history of tracking media credibility by the same standards and seeing media credibility fall. And as media credibility falls, not in a straight line, but in an irregular line, uh, obviously facts and circumstances contribute and detract from that. But as that has happened, it changes the impact of media on sentiment. And I wish I had understood that better. Because I I spent time studying sentiment and media 25 years ago, but I never anticipated. I mean, if you just look at worlds that you and I know and mm-hmm. what's happened to things like, I was talking to Jim Cramer this morning and uh, early, and he was recalling to my memory that when he started writing, he started writing for Smart Money. And then I thought about, well, I haven't thought about Smart Money magazine they in a long been time. Around. They haven't just... been around. Yeah, exactly. That's the point. And the world that was a Wall just Street gone. Journal publication. The, the world's sense. just, uh, you know, and you know, you, you guys here at Bloomberg bought Business Week for a dollar. Literally a dollar. Literally a dollar. Plus $38 million worth of debt if memory uh, serves. Yeah, but, you know, if you think about it, this whole world has had these features. And, you know, as we speak, Time Warner's uh, up for sale and uh, you know the world uh, you look at the transition and evolution of uh, the New York Times which has been going downhill at an irregular pace I mean recently they've gotten a Trump uptick a u- that's a huge uptick yeah but it's a short term phenomenon the trend for them Probably. has been downhill for 20 years right and well e- everything that's printed on pulp trees and and not digital has become uh, uh, a dinosaur and is fading. Uh, and then with that, uh, you, you know, the nature of employment inside journalism has shifted. I mean, Bloomberg is really quite an exception to the general principle. It's a data services company yes. with a media yes. outlet yes, yes, attached yes, yes. to it. And, 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 you know, so Thomson Reuters has a little bit of that too. Um, but the traditional core journalism world as it existed – has shifted to where there's not enough compensation to justify heavy right. research in most places. The channels are more narrow. Uh, compensation's constrained. Uh, and from that, uh, you know, one should be neither hostile nor sympathetic to journalists one way or the other any more than any other category. But from that, the output has moved ever more to this principle of trying to gain short-term attention through shrillness. Right at the loss of longer-term credibility, which then forces the investor to find ways to become more self-reliant. No doubt about that. And, you know, and that need to become self-reliant 
alters the way we should think about sentiment. That's interesting. You know, you have some new formats coming out, like ProPublica or even The Guardian, which was basically turned into a giant trust um, with its own funding as opposed to having to sell newspapers. They still sell newspapers, but they're now a self-funded freestanding entity. Same with ProPublica. It's an outside uh, investment that allows them to be freestanding. Who knows what's going to happen to the FT or the New York Times? I think the Wall Street Journal is stable, but as we move more towards indexing, who knows? You don't don't Uh, know. Well, I was in London last week talking to John Ridding, the CEO of the FT, Mm -hmm. and they seem to be pretty on top of it. No, no, game, I right? think I think they're doing great, but they have learned likewise that they have to do a multiplicity of things and that they have to adapt. And so uh, there's the one part of the world that I think you know people readily accept, which is that they, they got to be strong in the online side. And then the other part that they've done very well is to build up their conference business. And there's actually a uh, cyclically uh, regular need increasingly for people to get together because getting together is another form of increasing your credibility in what's going on. Sure. In a world where I less trust media, if I get together with people and I hear stories and we swap information, I can gain greater sense of confidence in what I'm doing. So their conference business has been growing. And, I, uh, and, and of course, John in particular is a big fan of uh, the importance importance of print being a piece of the puzzle but not the whole uh, puzzle because it provides tangibility mm-hmm. and so i don't see the pink which is you know the legendary name for the ft i don't see the pink disappearing but it's thinner than it used to be and sure. it's done differently than it used to be and that's necessary in this era but more and more you know just think of the world of local newspapers that used to exist most of which has been completely wiped out going away Going to digital, when you think about eBay replacing classified ads along with Craigslist, well, you just took the heart of the financial business model away from it. We we could digress about this. I, I know they're literally throwing us out of here in five minutes. Ken, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Thanks for having me. And, and uh, for those of you who are listening... Um, uh, we have been speaking still, listening to us after all this time. We have been speaking with Ken Fisher of Fisher Investments. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 143 or so of these conversations that, that we have had. I would be remiss if I did not thank my head of research, Michael Batnick, for helping uh, put together some of the subjects and questions uh, we discussed today, along with Taylor Riggs, who is my producer booker. Um, I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Our world is always moving. So with Merrill Lynch, you can get access to financial guidance online, in person, or through the app. Visit ML.com and learn more about Merrill Lynch, an affiliate of Bank of America. Merrill Lynch makes available products and services offered by Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer member, SIPC.